Welcome to An Amazingly Ordinary Life, the podcast that takes the behind the scenes look at the world of special needs. I'm Sherry Tharp, an autism mom and your host. Join me each week as we share our lives, build community, and redefine normal. This is An Amazingly Ordinary Life, episode number eight. Today, I'll be talking with Mindy Dykstra, a mom who not only homeschools six kids with dyslexia, but has dyslexia herself. Minnie, thank you for taking time out of your day to come and chat with me and to introduce us to your a little unusual family situation. My pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me to come, and I really am grateful for this opportunity. Well, good. So you have six kids. Yes, I do. And they all have dyslexia. They do. They have at least dyslexia, yes. As well as yourself. As well as myself, yes. And my, I actually... It's a familial thing. Uh, myself, my siblings, cousins, mother, grandmother. There was just no getting around this. No, no. It was just destiny. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you find out that you were dyslexic? Is this something you always knew? No, actually. For me, I didn't start struggling with it until I hit a higher education where it was a anxiety-induced test situation. I was able to create like self fixes all the way through high school. And so I was able to just listen auditorily and pay attention and learn. And there was very little real studying and learning, like reading, learning required. I was an avid reader. I'm a fabulous reader, but it's a whole different ballgame when you're actually like studying things. Another one of my gifts is dyscalculia. It's a math dyslexia. And so when I got into higher education and they were throwing things like chemistry and accounting and things that involve lots of reading and lots of math mixed together, that's when it really triggered the dyslexia bad for me. And I started really, really having a hard time with it. Did you know immediately what it was that was going on? Oh my goodness, no, no. I just, <laughs> I just knew that I would study and study and study and study. And the more I studied, the worse I would fail tests. My book work was straight A's. What would happen is, is I would go in to take the tests and I would fail them miserably. And so it got to the point where I'd taken a couple classes at college and which wasn't normal for me. I was a very good student, you know, high B's, high A's. And it wasn't something that I had really struggled with. But when I got into the college situations where it was trying to, not really testing the knowledge, but kind of trying to anticipate what the professor wanted you to learn and then be able to regurgitate it in a way that they wanted you to do it. And you were in a testing center and it was high anxiety and high stress. And I've since learned that those types of things do trigger the dyslexia, even if it hasn't manifested before that. And so I came to the point where I was when I really kind of figured out what it was, I had an inkling and I had some ideas. And so I was trying to work with it. But at that point, accommodations weren't really huge for things like dyslexia. And even if you thought you might have it, being able to identify it was not a common thing because people just thought that meant that you switched letters around, but it isn't. There's lots, there's actually a number of different kinds of dyslexia. And so my particular dyslexia. I was really struggling. And so it got to the point where I'd worked with it with a few classes, got some not decent grades, but managed to pass them. But when I hit chemistry, that's the one that (laughs) threw me for a pretty crazy loop because the chemistry was a huge amount of story problems, a huge amount of math. And so I'd taken college algebra 
And that one was a struggle for me. Thankfully, I had gone to the math lab and the teacher, based on the fact that the people at the math lab actually could identify me by name without me even being there because I had spent so much time there. <laughs> the teacher, he was kind to me and gave me a C plus grade based on what the tutors at the math lab told him that I did there for three and four hours a day instead of basing it off of my test scores, which would have failed me miserably. And so that's the dyscalculia coming in, which I was not aware that there was dyscalculia. I just knew that when I tried to do the math, my brain would go blank. And even though I'd learned this stuff, I could not pull it out of my brain for the life of me. Or I would go and I'd finally get the answers and I would go to look for the answer because it was usually a, you know, A, B, C, D, right? You know, choose the best answer on your little bubble fill-in sheet. And so I'd say, oh, look at that. Okay, C is the answer. And I'd fill it in. And then when I'd go back to check my work and base it off of what I'd written down, C wouldn't have the right answer. And I was going, what the heck? That's not the answer that I had. And it would put me into a bigger panic. So part of what some people experience with dyslexia is it actually messes with your ocular nerves and you do see things on the page that are not there. Or you'll read words that aren't there and when you go back to look, it will be a different answer. And so it's really frustrating because you're just going, what is wrong with me? <laughs> you know, and if you don't know what it is and you don't know how to identify it. So I got into this chemistry class and thankfully I had a teacher who, even though it was a 300 student class, you know, it was just a GE class. Um, when I went to him just before, like two days before a test, I just said, hey, I said, I know what you probably think. I said, I get A's on my assignments and I fail my test miserably. It looks like I'm a total cheater. <laughs> exactly. And I said, I am putting myself through school and there is no way I can fail this class. I cannot afford to retake it. I can't afford to mess it up. And he looked at me and he said, okay, come back. And he gave me a time and I'll chat with you. So I did, I came back and he started talking to me and he would ask me questions intermittently about stuff that had been in the, you know, in the coursework up to that point. And I would answer him and then he goes, okay. And he wrote some stuff up on the board and I said, oh, well, that's that and that's this and this is that. And he kind of looked at me and what I didn't know is he had looked at my test scores in the interim and he had looked at what I had done and what I had answered and what I hadn't answered. And what he was doing is he was asking me the questions that I had missed. And uh -huh. he realized that I did know the information and that I did learn it but he had put it in such a casual conversation way that it had made me not be panicked and stressed out and frustrated. <laughs> and that so was clever. It was very clever of him. And then I came to learn later as I worked with him over the next, you know, a few weeks of the semester that his son has the same gift. And so he knew and recognized what it was, even though I didn't have a full grasp on it. I always teasingly say, you know, at college, I went in and I went into the help center and they gave me a test to test me for dyslexia and ADD, but I never finished it. So <laughs> I never found out if I have ADD and dyslexia or not. And then I laugh because it's just kind of a great little paradox there. It is. It is. I love that. <laughs> but uh, I went and this professor, he then looked at me and he just said, okay. And I told him, I said, I have three tutors right now. And he's like, what? And I said, yeah, I have three tutors. I said, because if I have one, or two, it'll annoy him because of how much help I need getting this stuff ingrained in my brain so that I can be able to know it. And I said, because it is so hard for me. And I said, so I have three tutors. 
But he said, okay, come back. And he goes, don't go take the test tomorrow because it's this big testing center thing. He says, don't go take it tomorrow, come back. And then he proceeded to work with me. Now I understand because he had had a son as if I had accommodations, even though I didn't. And he gave me the test in a non-stressful environment. He let me take the test home. And he said, if you're testing and you're doing the things on the test and you blank out, just shut the page walk away, go do something for a couple hours, come back and keep taking the test. So he goes, you have all weekend. And he goes, bring it back to me on Monday. And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> it was so foreign to me, you know, I was like, all right, <laughs> you know, and so I did, but I took it home and I kind of did that. And it was amazing to me. I could remember the stuff. If I did that, it worked. And there were still a couple problems that I couldn't get to come out of my brain. And it's really frustrating because you know they're there, you know you learned them, but you can't get it to come out. And so I brought the test back to him and I said, here you go. And he goes, well, why didn't you finish these three? And I looked at him and I said, well, I blanked out. I said, I could not figure out a trigger to make those come to my conscious remembering. And I said, I just, I couldn't get him. And he looks through the pages and he goes, you do realize that those are the simplified versions of the ones you did do. And I said, I know. I said, <laughs> figure out how to do them. It wouldn't come out. And that's the hard thing when you're working with somebody who has dyslexia or dyscalculia. You just look at me like, you can't be serious. You just did like the 10 step complicated version, but you can't do the first step easy version. And you really can't. And so he looked at me and he smiled and he goes, think of, and he said something. And all of a sudden I go, oh, <laughs> right. And he hands it to me and he goes, would you please finish your test? There's a table. And he had it and I was just like, whoa. And it was so cool. And I just remember that feeling of somebody having faith in me and knowing that I could do it, even though I looked like a total idiot and moron, you know? Because I did. I looked like a complete moron. How can you not do this simple thing? <laughs> you know? And instead of responding to me in a negative way, he responded to me in a very positive way. And it truly made a huge difference to me and a huge difference in how I thought of myself and how I approached not just myself, but others who had the same type of challenges and gifts that they had been given. And so it was a significant thing. And so I ended up getting a B plus out of the class instead of an F. Yay! Yay! To his willingness to treat me as a human being and as a smart person <laughs> in spite of what was showing forth in the testing situation. So. Right. And what a blessing to have somebody who wasn't just willing to work with you, but he recognized what was going on. So yeah. he knew exactly how to work with you, not just, you know, making guesses here and there, but for somebody to actually know what it was that you were going through. Yeah. And not only that, but there was no judgment. He would just say, this is what you need to do. And I didn't know that's what I needed to do, but thankfully he did. Yeah. And that's what was so fabulous also. I, I always just have said little quiet prayer saying, thanks for that wonderful angel you sent. <laughs> because it taught me a lot that, I needed to know for, you know, in the future when I was working with my cute family. So. Right. So let's talk about that family. Start with your oldest and we'll just kind of go on down the line. So I have six, two girls and a boy, then a girl, then two boys. I have my little chiasm going there. So the oldest, she is going to be a senior this coming up here. 
I homeschooled my kids till about two years ago. In working with my kids, I've had a lot of hands-on one-on-one experience with them. My eldest continued to homeschool when situations made it so that I had to send the rest of them to public school because she was in the program. Here it's called ECAP. When I was growing up, it was called Running Start, where she gets to go to the college or her high school. And so she's been completing her associates and trying to get a nursing degree through her high school. So her goal is to, by the end of her senior year, graduate with her nursing degree. So she actually presented a lot like me, where she didn't have any issues when she was elementary, junior high, because she had her workbook, she had her program, she had the classes, we had co-op classes we went to, you know, she had a lot of interactive things, but she also had things where she had to personally study and learn. And she was okay because she was going at her own pace. There was no extra pressure and she was doing it the way that she did it best. The programs I found for them kind of gave allowances for people who might have dyslexic tendencies and whatnot. So she was very successful in her classes and in what she did. But there were telltale signs too. Dyslexics, a lot of them, their spelling is horrendous because it's about phonetics and rules, and right? And so um, they phonetically spell things how they sound. <laughs> and it's not necessarily how the English language spells them. There's a lot of things that go into recognizing it. And each of my kids have a little bit different way of presenting with the dyslexia. And so hers really became apparent when she hit the college classes. And she was under stress. And then she was given deadlines and tests deadlines and, you know, college level tests, which would be a challenge for any high schooler. But she really started presenting. And as it happened to her, I just smiled because I recognized it. Then we went in and had her tested and got her the accommodations she needed. And so at that point, it wasn't as big of a deal because, you know, I knew what I was looking at watching her reactions and responses to these tests. And she's like, Mom, I've studied for forever. And I just failed the test. And I smiled and said, let's go get this taken care of right now (laughs) because you don't need to go through that difficulty and stress. And the second she had the accommodations, it took and gave her the keys and the tools that she needed so that she was able to be successful in what she was doing. So good. That really nice. So let's talk about your second oldest. She was an interesting one. She has what I would consider a pretty photographic memory and Ironically enough, she's my very, very, very artistic artsy person. Hers, it was a little bit different than anybody else's. She went and it looked like she could read perfectly fine, that she was perfectly great at writing it, you know, just the basic stuff that you do, all until she hit second grade. And then when she hit second grade, everything fell apart. All of a sudden, she couldn't read anymore. Her writing tanked. She couldn't spell anything. I'm going, what is going on? Why is this child giving me a hard time? (laughs) When they're all little, so, you know, and she's only the second oldest. So the oldest, like I said, didn't show anything until she hit higher education. And so it was kind of this like really frustrating thing because I had done programs with them where it was a lot of memorizing and it was a lot of learning things. I mean, at that age, she had the first 20 elements of the elemental table memorized. And she could identify them on the flashcards instantly. She had all this wealth of knowledge. And then all of a sudden she can't read. And I remember the word that we got stuck on one day for almost two hours was strawberry. And in my brain, I go, she wouldn't read it. (laughs) But but what had happened is, and I didn't find this out till later on when I did Taekwondo with my kids. And 
I was talking to one of the mothers in the Taekwondo homeschool class. It met in the middle of the day. And I was saying to her, yeah, with this particular child, they all of a sudden couldn't read, you know, and I said, and it was such a frustration and such a struggle. And she goes, oh, that's how I did it. She goes, and it was about second grade. And I hadn't said anything else here. And I go, second grade, are you serious? And she said, yes. She said, did you know that? And she names the type of dyslexia. She said, manifests about second or third grade. And a kid will take and have totally been able to read or write before that. And then all of a sudden they can't. And she said, and that's how it manifests. But it isn't because, and I've come to learn all of this since, it isn't because they were actually reading or writing. It's because they had such a fabulous memory that they could memorize the stuff so perfectly that it presented as if they were reading and writing. But they were just spewing back the memorized information. And that just blew my mind. I mean, I could not believe that that was really what she was able to do was to show forth that kind of memorization all those years. And so when I started working with her, I remember this day we sat down and she was supposed to be reading this book and the word strawberry was in it. I said, okay, sound out each letter. And she's kind of obstinate sometimes. And when she's obstinate, I take and I have to kind of work with her and be like, okay, and be a little bit more patient. But she was like saying the sounds of each letter. Then she would say the sounds of the clusters. But then I'd say, okay, now say it all together. And she, quote unquote, wouldn't, not realizing that she couldn't because there was missing spaces in there and that she did not see it all together as one word. And so we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And by the time both of us were about practically in tears and I was getting irritated because I'm like, why are you being so rude? And she's like, why aren't you listening to me? I don't know what that word is. I'm like, you sounded it out like 50 times in the last two hours. <laughs> like, how do you not know what it is yet? But any parent who's listening to this, who's had this situation knows with a big chuckle what I'm talking about. And it seriously comes across like they're being just obstinate or rude or acting dumb or not living up to their potential because we know that they know what a strawberry is. They've eaten 10 million of them. And, you know, and I know that I'd showed her the word strawberry. I was her teacher. I knew she'd seen the word strawberry before and supposedly read it, but she hadn't. She'd never really seen it and she'd never really read it. And so at that point, I'm going, okay, what is going on here? And I had to start looking deeper and I had to start really delving into it. And so with her, a couple of the other things that happened was her writing was horrendous, not the letters. She had great like penmanship, but I have a notebook of her in sixth grade because I would have them journal and it doesn't look like English even remotely. But if you will take and look at each word and phonetically say what is written there, it's English. But That's just how she was spelling everything. She was literally spelling everything perfectly phonetically how it sounded. And she had the sounds of the letters down. She had those sounds of the clusters down. But the rules and the things that applied with it didn't. So at that point, I go, okay. And I found a spelling writing program for her that worked with her. And after she did that for a year and a half, all of a sudden you looked at her next notebook and you're going, woo, it's English. <laughs> <laughs> and what was interesting is, is when I gave her that particular workbook, 
I asked her if she wanted me to help her work through it, thinking, okay, you know, she'll need help with this. But she didn't. She didn't want help. And when she worked through it herself at her speed, the way she wanted to learn it, the way she learned it best, she got it. Because there wasn't a pressure there. I mean, you know, she had her assignment she had to do every day, but it was in her time and in her way. And that's something that I've learned with all of these kids, that if it's in their time and in their way, that they will be very successful. And as I've gone through the years, I've heard stories of different people who have been very successful in life, that that is the same take on it. If they have been allowed, even at college, to kind of process it and kind of get the information the way that they do it best, they are much more successful. That's awesome. Yep. So number three child, Garrett, he's what I call my worst dyslexic. He is classic dyslexic. He switches the letters. He switches the words. He cannot spell. He reads something. He goes, that's a bunch of gibberish. That doesn't make any sense. And especially when you get into like biblical type language or Shakespearean type language or something that isn't just a basic conversational thing. He has really, really, really struggled the most. And for him, we've had to have more accommodations than any of the other ones. The others were kind of a time-based or how much information do you put in front of him at one time. But for him, it was a lot more complicated than that. And he is the one who, when he went into public school, he actually backslid quite a bit. The teachers realized that if they would work with him a certain way, that he would show forth his A-quality work which he is totally capable of because as anybody who's worked with dyslexics know or anybody on any kind of spectrum, usually they're freaking brilliant people. You're not working with dummies when you're working with people who have these gifts. They're pretty darn smart. I always like to point out to people, especially my kids, my kids when they would get frustrated, you know, and and sit there and kind of be like, well, you know, because you use the term dyslexic and people take that as a negative thing. I don't. I know dyslexics, I know their capacity, and they are phenomenally intelligent, like phenomenally. And so I'll look at my kids and I'll go, okay, kids. So the kids will say, I'll, I'll get my kids and, you know, and I'll give them an assignment or I'll ask them to do something and they'll say, oh, I can't do that. I'm dyslexic. And I'll smile and I'll look at them and I'll say, oh, really? Well, let's talk about who's dyslexic. And we'll and I'll say, guess who's dyslexic? And they're like, I now they say, I know. But at the beginning, like, you know who Thomas Edison is? And they're like, no. And I said, he's the one who invented the light bulb. And guess what? I said, along with a lot of other stuff. And I said, he was dyslexic. And I said, Einstein is dyslexic. I said, Woodrow Wilson, one of the presidents of the United States, who never read a book in his life, but he was president of the United States he was dyslexic. And I said, and, and I go through this list and there is a lot of people, even now that like a lot of the people who are multi-billionaires who run those companies, if you really delve into it and really find the information, they're dyslexic because they can see it in their heads. They can figure it out. They are sharp, sharp individuals. And so when they say that to me, I go, okay, so if they can do it, so can you. <laughs> You know, and kind of, kind of encourage them that way because, um, you know, everybody needs encouragement when they're feeling frustrated because they can't do something as easily or the way that they see other people doing it. So that is one of the, the challenges of kids with these gifts being in school is that they see everybody else 
approaching it and doing it and not needing extra help or having an easy time or what they consider an easy time doing it. And so it frustrates them and it, it makes them just kind of personally unsure and almost like they self-talk themselves out of feeling intelligent just because they need the extra extra assistance or the extra verbiage or they and really they don't need extra they just need to approach it differently and that's right. not how schools teach it and so um so so my third he he really he really struggled with that but thankfully we've finally gotten to the point where the teachers are teachers are willing to say hey we'll work with this this way. And one of the big troubles we had is where I live in Maryland, they didn't even acknowledge dyslexia as something that could be identified and given accommodations for until about two years ago. It might be two and a half years ago. And so it caused a huge issue, which is another reason why when I was like, are you going to put your kids in public school? You know, after they were getting out of elementary school and I said, um, I'll just have to see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to put my kids into a situation where they can't be successful. And so, um, but we had to, we had to kind of learn the system and whatnot. And I never, and every says, Oh, did you have them professionally tested? Well, not until I put them into the school system because there's no need if they don't need accommodations. And so as soon as it was necessary to put them in the public school system, then yeah, I did get them tested. I took them to a wonderful psychologist locally that, had been working with a different county and he was able to quickly and easily identify <laughs> the <laughs> situation. And um, we were able to take that and get the accommodations they needed at the schools. And the schools do do their own testing, but even then they were very unfamiliar with how it presents and what it is because of their not being instructed in it because of the state not acknowledging it. And right. So, it was still so new. They didn't have time to get all the training in. Yeah, they didn't have training. And even now, there's not a whole lot of training. But the teachers, as I go in and I talk to them, because it's now legal to say, yes, we can acknowledge dyslexia. <laughs> they're more willing to listen and to be open to ideas and suggestions. And what's interesting is that I found that there's quite a number of the teachers who have the challenge of dyslexia themselves. And those teachers are even more open to working with the students on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And so that's kind of a neat thing too. Yeah, that's good. We homeschooled for a while too, and you don't need that label or that diagnosis when they're schooling at home. And so it's always like a catch-22 as far as getting them diagnosed because you hate to just slap a label on your kid and then send them out in the world and having that label, you know, people kind of look at them a little bit differently. But then if you don't have the label, you can't get the accommodations and you can't get the help and you can't get the services. So you'd need that in order to help them be more successful. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. And that's what I had tried to avoid as long as possible. But the good thing was, is that when they're like, oh yeah. And they tried to turn it to a negative thing. I go, well, guess what? I'm dyslexic and I put myself through college, so. <laughs> there you go. No excuses for you. <laughs> so. Okay, so your next child is another girl. Is another girl, and hers was a little bit different as well. She struggled with the reading, but she was really good at, and, and this is something else, a number of my kids, if they're reading silently to themselves, they're okay. But when they are asked to read out loud, 
kind of causes a huge issue because to read to yourself, you just take the words, they go through your ocular nerves and they have a very short path to the brain. When you're reading out loud, you're trying to do three things at once. And so you are taking and the words go to that ocular path to your brain, but then your brain has to translate it, flip it, make it so that you can see it in the proper format in your brain. And then you have to know what it says, take it into context. Then it has to translate from your brain into your tongue. And you have to get your tongue to then know what to say and how to form the words to say them properly, to be able to sound them out and to make them sound like the words that they're supposed to be. And so that is a very, very, very complicated process. And thankfully, when the kids were very young, I went to a special week-long seminar class. It's called the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential. It's out in Pennsylvania, and they work with people from around the world. And it's fabulous. And they do this class, and they teach you how the brain works. And they teach you how the brain sees things and functions. And when they explain that process in that class, I was like, oh, my goodness. It had never occurred to me how complicated it was to read out loud. And so that's what you see a lot when you get kids who have a hard time reading out loud that they'll do these tests to test their reading comprehension in school and they'll have them read out loud. And I always just thought that was very interesting because I thought, I wonder if they've ever considered having them read it to themselves and then ask them the questions, (laughs) you know, because I have a few of my kids who will say, you know, if they would just let me read it to myself, I would be fine. And my kids, we've practiced reading out loud from the time they were little, but you can see the stuttering. You can see the not getting the right sounds, the right letters, or you can see where they switch them around when they're reading out loud. When they read to themselves, the switching around doesn't happen as much because there's a whole lot less steps. But when they have to read out loud, that's when a lot of the switching around occurs because there's so many more steps and so many more places for it to get messed up. So my child number four, she was a little bit slower with doing her homework but she would get it done. And I was watching her and I could see that she was getting it done, but that she needed extra motivation. And she's a very competitive person. So when it was time to put her into school, I knew that it would be a good thing. I knew that it would be a motivation for her. And it was because she wanted to please her teachers and she wanted to have that little bit of competition of getting the good grade. And so for her, it was a positive thing, but she had to have the accommodations because she needed the extra time because she did things slower. She had to take more time to do it, to get it done. And she also, because of her struggle with reading out loud, they put her in the reading program, which mm. was great because then she had the ability to practice every day. When I tried to get her to practice every day, cause I'm mom, <laughs> there was a lot of pushback, right? Yeah, we we tend to get a little bit more of the obstinate side of telling our kids to do stuff. Yeah, especially when we're the mom and the everything and the teacher. Exactly. And so it was a good thing thing for her to go and have that ability to just practice that reading every day and have somebody else motivating her to do it. It doesn't go away. They still always struggle. You know, when we read out loud at home, she struggles. But she is my self-advocator. I kind of gave her a good lesson before she went into public school because she started just out of elementary school into junior high. And I gave her a, this is how you self-advocate lesson. (laughs) And I said, you are going to need these accommodations. You're going to need the extra time because we both know you take extra time to do so. She's like, well, yeah, I do. 
And I said, you can get those things, but you need to go in and tell them you want them. And it was kind of neat because she kind of really embraced the self-advocating. And she'd come home and say, well, this worked and this didn't work. And I'd say, okay, then my suggestion would be that you then approach the counselor this way or the teacher this way or the situation this way. And she did. And she went out and she has done a beautiful job of self-advocating and being able to work with the teachers one-on-one. She herself figured out how to work with the teachers one-on-one. So they would give her the extra one-on-one time that she needed to finish her assignments at school so she didn't have to have homework at home. Because kids with challenges, having homework at home after they've been at school all day is just too much. It is too, too much. They are done. They are spent. Their brain is tired. Their eyes are tired. Their system is shut down. And they are done. And so she was able to go. And she was able to um, figure that out. And so she has she's done marvelous in her classes and in her things. She's, she's come home with straight A's quite a few times. She has figured out how to get the help that she needs so that her accommodations not, aren't just the accommodations on the paper, but she's gotten personalized accommodations because of self-advocating. And I really feel strongly that that's something important to teach anybody in life is self-advocating, but especially kids and youth who have these types of gifts and, and challenges that they've been given is because they need to be able to go find a way to talk to their teachers and talk to their professors and talk to the people so that they don't just look at them like I was looked at at college. I had professors look at me and go, you don't look stupid. What's your problem? Oh my goodness. (laughs) They literally said that to me and they don't need that aggravation. They don't need that at all. Nobody needs that. And so I feel really strongly that teaching kids how to self-advocate and teaching kids how to rise up and really get their power and be able to be successful is so important. It is. What a great lesson to teach your kids. We couldn't get Logan interested enough about anything that was going on around him to self-advocate. And then in high school, I think he just got so sick of things being the way they were that he actually spoke up finally. And he still doesn't, he's not great about it, but it does come out every once in a while. And the fact that you were proactive in that and taught your child, hey, this is what you're going to have to do if you want to be successful. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I taught all of them, but she's the one who really embraced it. Yeah. She took it to a whole new awesome sauce level. (laughs) (laughs) Then you have two boys. I do. And so with the two boys, they're a little bit different because by the time, now mind you, all my kids, I have six kids, but they're only 18 months apart each for the most part. I think the last two are a little closer to two years, but it's pretty much 18 months apart. So I had them pretty quick and fast. <laughs> so when I walked through somewhere, people would look at me like, oh my word. Is <laughs> You're not messing so, around. Yeah, yeah. Get it done fast. Be done. That, so by the time I had really figured out the idiosyncrasies of each of the children, the youngest two, I'm just going, oh my goodness. I'd finally gotten to the point where I was like, okay, let's do preventative maintenance now. <laughs> yeah. And so I had been looking and looking and found a book that was called How to Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. And it has been fabulously put together. And it's scripted so that whoever is the teacher or the parent going through this book with a child, it's scripted. You just follow the script. It is so simple. And then the child 
just does the quick little lessons. They're very short little lessons. They don't take very many minutes at all. And it's formatted so you can do it with a tiny child. But it's also formatted, and this is the thing that intrigued me the most about it and made me want to try it out to use it, was that in the very front of it, it gives a description of how they came to put the program together. And what they did is they tested it and they kind of beta tested it on everybody from tiny children up through college students and adults learning a second language who had not been able to read before. And so I found that very intriguing. And they stated that they did it for people who had special needs. They did it for people who had, you know, were struggling in a total variety of areas. And so I said, oh my goodness, this sounds like something that could be effective. And so what I did is I did it with my youngest two at that point were starting to learn to read. Not the youngest, youngest, but when you have a family of six, if you've ever seen the dynamics, the youngest one always wants to do what the others are doing. Yes. So they kind of like pre-prep themselves a little bit early. So even though he was really tiny, he still wanted to, wanted to be part of it. So I'd give him one lesson for everybody else's three or four lessons, you know. And so he did start it. I also went back and with number three and four, my son and daughter, I did go back and do some of the lessons with them um, because I wanted to see if I could kind of reprogram that in their brains. And unfortunately, I was getting enough of a pushback from them that I didn't get to continue on as much, especially with my son. I really wanted to put him through the whole thing, but he was looking at it as baby because I was doing it with his little brothers. Right. And so there was that little tiny, tiny hiccup there. But if I would have known what I know now, I would have just done it with him and her first. And then after I got it, got them through it, I would have jumped to the little, but um, that's okay. It's a done deal. It doesn't matter now. But uh, for those of you listening, you know, if you have olders and youngers, do it with the olders first so they don't think it's baby. <laughs> and so I went and I started working with this and it was just great because it, what it does is it gives an auditory. And then when they write the letters, they, they do a little tiny bit of variation at the beginning to let the kids see the difference between the letters and the sounds they make when they're supposed to pronounce them. And so it's kind of a clever thing. And then by the end of the lesson, they've switched it back to the regular written English. And so it's not confusing to them when they go to just read regular manuscripts. And so um, it's a really great program. And so what happened was is that um, when, when my two youngest went into the public schools, well, first, the older of the two, he's very much dyslexic also. And, and I know that he would be worse if I hadn't found that particular reading program with him because he's got the dyscalculia also and, and it shows quite a bit. With the reading, he went in and he would test just like a grade and a half below grade level. And then I was like, oh, well, he'll just catch up. Well, no, he hasn't. <laughs> Two years later, being in the public school system, he's still a year and a half below grade level. Because the elementary school refused to acknowledge that he was dyslexic, like in, on paper, right? But they did put him into like their reading program and they did give him one-on-one -on -one for some stuff that because of the situation, they refused to acknowledge that. And so um, of course, he's still a year and a half behind because if you don't work with the dyslexic, the way a dyslexic needs to be worked with, they do not progress. I mean, he progressed because he's still only a year and a half behind, not more than that, but he still is a year and a half behind. And so that is something that hopefully in the next year or so we'll be able to correct. And I can do that personally with him. 
but the youngest one, because I started it with him so young and he never had that window of frustration, he is actually above his reading level. Really? Yes, he is, because I was able to pre-correct the issues. So when I started with the second to youngest, he was already in first grade, whereas I started with the second one in pre-K. And so it made that much of a difference. But I still see indications of the dyslexia and everything in number six, but as far as the reading goes, he's able to comprehensively get the reading as well because the book that how to teach your child to read in 100 easy lessons it works with the comprehension as well not just the reading and i'll include a link to that book as well in the show notes it's a fabulous little book to use for your kids so that worked for him and he does has little symptoms but i i have a funny feeling his are going to be the ones that when he gets into the testing situation (laughs) and he gets into the anxiety situation kind of like the eldest it'll pop up a little more because I've watched him under stress and I've watched him kind of how he responds to those stressful inquiries versus <laughs> just a casual conversation of knowledge. So this all fascinates me because you kind of touched on it at the beginning. What I knew about dyslexia was a person with dyslexia would just switch letters or they'd flip around or they would kind of swim on the page And to hear that it presents itself in so many different ways and there's so many challenges that go along with it, it just amazes me that they're not acknowledging it just across the board in school districts everywhere. The fact that it's taking, what did you say, like two years, three years in your area for it to be acknowledged as something that might need accommodations? Well, it's only in the last two or three years that they've acknowledged it. Right. Yeah. So they refuse to even acknowledge it as a disability. They call it a disability. I call it a gift because I don't think being brilliant is a disability. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think having to approach something a little bit differently to learn it is a disability. I think that's freaking awesome. Oh, well, yes, you poor thing. You have a photographic memory. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's a great way to look at it, too. And so the cool thing is, is that as they have learned and as they've grown, they, they kind of get their own take on it. And that's what I've noticed with a lot of dyslexics. Like I have a lot of friends who have dyslexia and I'm really, really quickly able to identify people who struggle with that. You know, I can, I can ask, just talk to somebody for a few minutes and just kind of have a quick conversation with them. And by what they tell me, I'm like, oh, per chance. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, yeah. And I'm like, that's awesome. And they kind of get taken aback a little bit. They're like, what do you mean? It's awesome. Oh my gosh. Do you know that, you know, I have this fun little thing and I'll say about, you know, the gift of dyslexia and they, and they just kind of go, oh, well, I've never heard it presented that way before. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Yes. You're brilliant. You're amazing. And they're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I've been called that a whole lot in my life. And so, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a fun thing to be able to um, interact with people who have looked at this as something that's bad their whole lives and and help them to kind of get a different perspective on it. The other thing is, is that I don't know if, if you've heard of this, but there's actually this, this fun little list. It's like the 35 things that if you have six or seven of them, then you're probably dyslexic. With dyslexia and some of the things on there, they you wouldn't even think that those things were related, but they are. One of the items is they tied their shoes very late in life. Why? Because it's a pattern. It's a repeated pattern. And dyslexics don't do good with repeated patterns. 
that's why they have a hard time with a lot of the way the school does things. Yeah. <laughs> good with that. They have warped sense of time passing. You'll get a lot of them who will say, man, we were sitting there for three hours. It took forever. And it was like maybe five to seven minutes. But they are very serious when they say three hours, you know, or no, I, I didn't take forever to do my assignment. I was only doing it for like 20 minutes. But it was like five o'clock at night when they finished and 11 o'clock in the morning when they started it. <laughs> no, but they were sure that assignment only took them 20 minutes. And so there's a, you know, either direction it goes, there's a warped sense of time. Also, putting things in proper sequence, like how they happen or how they affect or how, you know, a butterfly cycle, you know, goes this way. Just sequencing anything, but especially things that relate to self. How things happen when I do this, then this is the result, or this is how it affects, or this is what happens. And so a lot of people don't realize that's part of dyslexia. It's also part of ADD and autism. And a lot of the other things are on spectrum. The other is when you're going and approaching them, kind of like I was talking about with me in school, where they'd look at me and go, you don't look stupid, what's your problem? You know, you don't come across as stupid, so what's your deal? And that one of the questions, you know, does the person present as really, really, really intelligent, but when they test or when they're given questions, they do not live up to their potential or they don't meet their level of intelligence. And that's a lot of times what people will notice the most, but they don't associate it with dyslexia. Because that has to be something else that couldn't possibly be dyslexia, you know. And that's so, just kids not wanting to do their work or yeah, being stubborn. That's them being ornery. That's them being ADD. Well, a lot of ADD and dyslexia and dyscalculia and whatnot go hand in hand. And autism is also in this. Those things kind of go hand in hand because they kind of have the same presentations of challenges. So tell me, with actually the seven of you, with yourself included, dealing with dyslexia, obviously you learn a little bit differently. Does it affect your day-to-day -day home life at all? Or are you able to just continue on as normal? Well, it definitely affects day-to-day -day home life because of the other things I was just kind of giving examples of that affect dyslexia. Understanding truly of time, understanding how you interact with people and how that affects them, <laughs> understanding sequences of stuff, all that stuff truly affects big time, right? Something else that kind of made me laugh that I had no idea was associated with dyslexia was late bedwetting. Really? And I just said, are you kidding me? Let me tell you, that's affected our home life. I um, had no idea. No idea that that was associated with dyslexia. And I had six kids 18 months apart. So oh my goodness. We don't even have to describe it. Just think about no, it. We could just picture that one right there. Yeah. So I didn't realize that's what it was, but I was just going, what is wrong? I cannot get these kids body drinks, you know? And so there's been things that have affected, but there's also things like, you know, just in our household, my kids don't like to read. To them it is a horrid, heinous torture, you know? <laughs> but I also have kids who I've really, in doing homeschool, I could kind of hone in on their personal talents and skills and let them enhance those. And so I have very artistic children. 
I have children who love and adore drawing and painting and creating and building and doing all the hands-on type things. And so our home is a very artistic hands-on home, a very creative home, a very, hey, mom, can I go do this home? And I'm like, well, that sounds kind of deleterious. Can we modify it a bit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so now as they've gotten into the teenage years, they love the video games and the online stuff because it's very quick and fast and their little picture brain thinks that it's fabulous. And so they don't like the fact that I like to limit their intake. (laughs) But I think that's something that all parents in this day and age deal with. I've definitely had some pushback on that one. Yeah. And, And this is something else I learned that I hadn't realized is that dyslexics are very picture thinkers, right? And people can be very engineering brain, but still be picture thinkers. And so when you're working with uh, dyslexic, and, and I know you've worked with autism a lot, autistics are very much as they do. They see in pictures. Yes. And they are very visual. And a normal average person who sees things in pictures, they see about 200 pictures a minute is about the average, you know, if, when their brain is going through stuff and kind of trying to figure something out. A dyslexic will see up to 2,000 pictures a minute. Wow. And they will see the images right side out, inside out, reversed, twisted, flipped, every angle they could possibly imagine. And then what they'll do is like if I say cat, (laughs) they'll see everything they've ever known, seen, or imagined a cat to be. And it'll flash through their mind in a minute. And then in what they've talked to or had the conversation with that particular person about a cat, they will pick out the cat that that person was talking about, and they will probably be accurate in their picture in their brain. And it's just fabulous and fantastic watching that work. And so you'll get, as far as home life goes, you'll get a lot of that, well, I know. And you're thinking, oh, they're being an abstinent teenager, but they really do know. Yeah. Yeah. They have the capacity to have you start saying a sentence to them, get halfway through the sentence, they've figured it out, they intuit the second half of your sentence. They've already processed what they have presumed that you are going to say or do or are going to finish with. They've gone through their 2,000 pictures by the time you can get the sentence out, and they've already figured it out. And so you're not even done saying your sentence all the way, especially if it's a long, drawn out, winded adult sentence, right? And they're looking at you, they shrug their shoulders and go, I know. And you want to smack them. (laughs) (laughs) But the truth is, they've already figured it out. Yeah. And if you have that understanding, you can approach it differently. If you don't have that understanding, they are an obstinate, rude little teenager with a mouth on them and you're ready to knock them silly. Exactly, right? exactly. And so it makes it totally different when you realize the perceptions and the ideas and the vision and the things that go through their heads and why. Yeah. And so I'm going to kind of jump into something that you didn't ask me, but the place that I learned about that concept, the things that they, how their brains work, that way, I was looking when my kids were needing to go to public school. The reason they had to go is because I had to jump back into the workforce. 
and being a single mother now of six kids. And so I had to look for a vocation that would allow me to be at home with my kids because me going to a standard job wasn't an option because for various reasons, but also because the window in between when my kids left for school and when they came home was so small that a standard job wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. And I needed to be home when my kids got home to help them with their homework because that's just the way it is. When you have this life of kids, they need help with their homework. Right. And when they would leave in the morning, I needed to be there to send them off. And also because they were still doing their homework. <laughs> yeah. You do homework from the time they get home till they go to bed. And then when they wake, especially when I have six of them that I'm working with, you know, they might not be doing it each individual the whole time, but I am, you know, from the time that we get up in the morning all the way through, we have early classes for the high school kids and they start at like five in the morning. And so we leave early and then we go and come back and help the other kids get ready to go to school and finish their homework. And so having a standard average everyday go to go to work job, it just isn't an option for me if I want my kids to be successful in life, which is my primary goal. Of course, so, that's, that's always parents' goal. Yes, exactly. And so I, I was looking and looking and looking. And as I was looking, I was blessed to come upon um, the Davis Dyslexia Foundation. And the first thing they say when you kind of approach their site is read the book, The Gift of Dyslexia. And so The Gift of Dyslexia was written by Ron Davis. And so I ordered it off of Amazon and I started reading it. And as I was reading it, I'm like, I wish I would have found this book years and years ago. <laughs> it would have saved me so much grief, you know, and that what you asked about the home life and stuff, because I would have had a better concept of where these comments were coming from. Mm. Because I have kids who have the hardcore dyslexia and that's when a lot of this manifests itself mine was a different showing of it and so I didn't well my parents probably said I was obstinate but um, <laughs> they that about their kids right <laughs> especially teenagers oh yeah but, um, but it was never intentional if it if it came across that way and so that made me understand it even more right and so the whole thing of them saying oh I know you know and and they, they go, stop trying to be a know-it-all. Stop trying to like act like you know everything. Don't say I know. Say, you know, say all right, you know. But it kind of explained the whole thing. And explained the whole why they complain about being bored all the time. I don't know how many of you guys, but my kids, constantly, the words coming out of their mouth are, I am bored. And it explains that whole concept. And why that comes out of their mouth. And you're going, are you kidding me? This is valuable information. <laughs> Where have you been all my life? Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, the heavens open, the light comes down. <laughs> <laughs> and so it really, really, really was a very eye-opening thing. And I was like, man. And so as I looked into it, I realized that they had facilitators. And that I could become a licensed facilitator. And that not only would it allow me to have a job that I could do from home, that I could make my own hours, but I would be licensed internationally. I could do it anywhere. So it didn't matter if I moved. It didn't matter if life changed again. It didn't matter if I had kids that I had to work with, you know, when I, it didn't matter. I was, I would be able to do this job anywhere and at any time. And I also realized that, oh my goodness, 
it would give me the ability to not just help myself, but my kids and my mom and my grandma and my cousins and my, you know, and so I started going, oh my goodness. And all these people who I'd looked at and watched and kind of had a tender place in my heart my whole life for all these adults and teenagers who had that same type of experience as I did when I got to college and I got looked at like an absolute idiotic moron because I could not do things the way that everybody else did them. And so it was really kind of this cool thing. And so as I was reading this and I was doing this, I said, okay, how do I sign up to take the class? And it's a pretty intensive coursework. Anybody can take the first class. But then at that point, you have to be invited back based on how well you do for the continuing classes. And each one, you at the end, have to be invited to the next one. And it's coursework. By the time you're done, it's about 400 credit hours. And you are taught and instructed the system that they use to what it does. And I love this. It empowers those with dyslexia. It gives empowerment to them and gives them back their power. And it takes this thing that they've been told is a bad thing their whole life. And it removes all the triggers and all the crazy stuff and turns it into their own personal superpower. And so I just love it. I love the thought of being able to empower people who have these gifts given to them and to be able to turn it into their superpower. And it kind of made me smile because I thought, you know, every superhero in all the comic books, they have this thing and it's kind of like this crazy thing. And then they have to have somebody teach them how to use it properly. And once they learn how to use it properly and they learn how to control it and they learn how to kind of have, you know, their special suit or their special helmet or whatever it is, or, you know, then all of a sudden they can control it. And it is this amazing superpower. And that is what these things are. They are their superpowers. And all they have to have is a little key that they need to turn it into a superpower instead of have it be a problem or a trial to them. And so that's what this program does. It is just so fabulous and fantastic. And so that's kind of something that I have taken on as a, not just a job, but kind of a passion project. I love it. And it is so much fun. And I would recommend to anybody who thinks that they or any of their kids or anybody that they know has dyslexia or dyscalculia or even autism, the gentleman who wrote the book, Ron Davis, he was so autistic that at 19, he still couldn't even talk. And he has since obviously done wonderful things in coming out of that and learning about his superpower and his gift. And so this book, The Gift of Dyslexia, is just something that I would recommend anybody read who, who is even curious about it, because it is just a phenomenal way to kind of understand where people are coming from who have these gifts and what they really mean when they say the things that they say. It increased my patience level with my kids. Oh, my gosh. I went from being frustrated when they would say these things to being like, oh, all right. That's no big deal. <laughs> Almost overnight. My kids probably were like, what's wrong with mom? <laughs> well, this but, sounds like a great book and what an amazing program. And I have to say that you are so uniquely qualified that, I mean, they're just going to be blessed to have you in their corner supporting them and out there trying to empower them. That's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So tell me, with your kids and all the things that you had to deal with them, did you have a support system? Was your family there to be supportive for you? 
not really. My family lives like 2,200 miles away. Oh, goodness. Yeah. It's not that they didn't want to be, but they just plain weren't around. So it was just me and the kiddos and we were in a situation where we couldn't move and we couldn't get any closer. And so that was just something that I had to work with and deal with. Even now it's something where we just are like, okay, here we are. Let's do this. You know? (laughs) Well, you're doing a great job. Kids are old enough now that, like I said, some of them have embraced it. Some of them are self-advocating. Some of them are still trying to use it as an excuse not to do their schoolwork. But uh, they're teenagers. Yes. <laughs> but What's been the hardest thing that you've had to deal with in all of this? I think the thing that me personally I struggled with was at the very, very beginning when I started identifying it and realizing that, that each one was different. Mm. You know, you do one and you think, okay, I got this. And then the next one comes and they're totally different. And then the next one comes, they're totally different. You're going, wait a minute, I thought I got this. You know, that, that there, there isn't just one little, one specific way. It is a eclectic genre of things that happen, that, that show, that manifest, that come up. And you have to approach each one with the unique individual that you're working with and the unique thing that just happened. Right. That, I think, is the hardest thing is because our tendency is to just go right to the stop being a turd, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Instead of realizing, Oh wait, this is the way that they process things. This is their perspective. They aren't being a turd. They really truly think that what they just read is gibberish. It doesn't mean anything to them. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Um, If I say, okay, give me a definition for the word the, what about, and what about a, is that this even when you get into he's and she's it's more like girl boy but it's not a real definition right right so all those words when a dyslexic sees them reads them hears them it's a big blank white space in their brain how many of those words are in each sentence oh so many And so what happens is, and you'll see this when you read the book, The Gift of Dyslexia, what happens is, is when they hit one of those words, anything that might have made any sense before that blanks out. And then they hit the next word and the next word and the next word. And so they go, oh, well, they they don't get the concepts when they read. Well, there was no definitions to give them any concepts. (laughs) You have to have definitions to be able to grasp and get concepts and then maintain them. That is something that happens. And so the kids' responses to that, well, they're just trying to figure it out and they're kind of winging it and making it up, make them look like they are being disrespectful. It makes them look like they're being obstinate. It makes them look like they're not trying. It makes them look like they aren't putting work and effort into it. And they are looked at poorly. When really, when you take it from their brain and their perspective and their paradigm, what are these crazy adults talking about? <laughs> you know, yeah. why are they getting upset with me when I did exactly what it is that they asked me to do? Because from their perspective, they did. This is just a constant learning curve. Yeah. But the cool thing is, is that with this, the Davis Dyslexia International, that when they work with the individuals one-on-one and, the, and they actually go through a program, what it does is that it allows these people who have this, 
to orient themselves, to be able to be oriented, to have a true understanding of where they are, how that relates to where they are, how when they're reading these words, the triggers are then gone. The triggers that make them blank and whiteboard are gone. And they have a true, pure definition of what that means. So that as they're reading, it makes sense because there's a definition for every word that they're reading. But there's a special way that it has to be done and a certain way that it has to be accomplished. And it's explained in the book. And there's people who have, with somewhat success, taken their kids through it. But there's also, you know, people like me who are going to the, I'm in the end part of becoming a facilitator, but who are facilitators who can then walk the people through the process so that they can be completely and ultimately successful as long as they put the work and effort into it. But it brings so much joy and success in seeing, oh my gosh, look at this, I can do this now, you know. They can pick up a book and they can read a book and actually not find it a torture device. And they actually find it enjoyable. And so it, it totally changes their lives. And it's amazing. It sounds like it. I look forward to talking to you more about this too after you've finished the program and you've been a facilitator for a while. That'd be really interesting to, to hear your thoughts on it then. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. When the overwhelm starts to creep in and it feels like things are just a little too much, what do you do to recharge to keep going? Something I learned was you have to just stop. And this advice was given, especially since I was homeschooling, when you hit a day where everybody's in tears or everybody's frustrated, just stop. One day off, even if it's three days off, isn't going to stop anybody from not getting knowledge. You know, they're, they're not going to fail their grade. They're not going to be held back. Everybody hits those points. I mean, you know, when they're getting sent to public school, it's kind of the day they look at you and go, can I please just stay home from school and hang out with you today? You know, and every now and then, if a parent doesn't have work, they, I've, I've heard lots of parents say, yes, we'll have a day to ourselves. We'll go do something fun because they've kind of hit that wall. Yes. And, um, and that's, that's the first step is being able to identify those times and back off. Because when you have people who are working with these types of um, caveats, it makes it so that they hit the wall a little bit more than people who aren't. And they get frustrated a little bit more or a little bit easier or a little bit more often than people who don't because they are battling themselves to try to get this done. Plus they're watching other people do it easily. And so it makes that wall come up a whole lot more often. I learned that if I just tried to push through it and say, well, in my brain, I said, oh, it doesn't matter if they get it done or not. I'll just kind of say, well, please try to get it done and then walk away and not push it. But what that does is it still leaves it sitting there hanging in the air. And so there's no real cutoff. And I found it is a much more successful endeavor and it is a much better approach to just stop, say, everybody come here. We are declaring today a holiday. Go put your books away. Shut everything down. Today is now a day off. You get the second half of the day off or, you know, the three quarters of the day off, you know, when you find that you've hit that wall. Or if everybody wakes up and they are just in a bad place, you just say, we are done. Put it away. And this was when I was homeschooling, mind you. And we are calling it a holiday. And... That not only helped them, but it helped me because then I didn't have this guilty conscience of I'm supposed to be making my kids do their school. 
bothering me all day because then I can't have a nice day. I can't enjoy myself. I can't relax. I can't decompress. But as soon as I allowed myself and gave myself the right to say today is a holiday, that in and of itself was decompressing. Yeah, that's really good. Released all that tension and the anxiety and the responsibility and everything of what was supposed to have been being done. So that was a huge, huge, huge thing for me to realize that. And even if the kids are in public school, being able to just say, you know what? I noticed that you kind of are having a bad day. Set it to the side. We'll figure it out tomorrow. Let's go out and <laughs> get some ice cream, play some soccer, you know. I'll take you to the park, you know, whatever it is. But giving yourself permission to really just say, we're shutting down. It's done. And setting it to the side for real. We've done that too. It's pretty easy to gauge with my kids when they start to get a little too overwhelmed with school and responsibilities and things. And I've let them stay home from school before and we just call it a mental health day. And it's just, you know, there's no expectations of you. There's no responsibilities today. Just chill out and, you know, pull yourself back together and get ready to do it again later. That's right. I love that you call it mental health day because that is exactly what it needs to be because people don't take care of their mental health. They really don't. That's something else that I kind of do is I work in a field of mental health and making sure that, you know, people and their systems and their bodies and their health and their, and their mindset and stuff is set in a way that allows them to be most productive and, and their best self. And, and taking those mental health days are seriously important Yes, they are. And calling it a holiday, not feeling guilty, not feeling bad, but calling it a holiday and then doing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, so important. So important. So, yeah. And so for me, because I am a mom and a single mom, I really don't ever get the opportunity to really just have me time. And especially with no family around and whatnot. There are really kind people that we know who are kind of adoptive grandparents and stuff who will take a kid or two kids or, you know, or take us all on some fun little ice cream or something, you know, which is really fun. But it's different than, you know, saying, hey, you know, I need some me time. Right. (laughs) You know, and usually my me time would be me needing to still go get groceries and I haven't done it. And so I'd rock really slowly <laughs> to the grocery store with this blank look on my face. And as I, you know, sloth like looked at the cool stuff on the shelf and then kept going with my cart because if I made it last a while, I might be able to decompress before I got home with the groceries and had to keep going again. Right. Exactly. I've had my husband call me when I'm at the grocery store and ask me if I got lost because I was gone for so long. <laughs> yes, so you know, yes. Because the responsibilities don't end. You know, yeah. even even as I've been sitting here talking to you, ironically, I wish I had a little video camera to the side. I've had the shadows of multiple kids come up to the door. I locked the door. <laughs> the, the door, his handle, has. I even had a note lid under the door and it sat there for a while and I don't know what it said and then a kid pulled the note back out and it disappeared again <laughs> <laughs> yeah it doesn't mom, end 
in there doing something. So that means we need her right now. Exactly. It cannot wait. No. I love that they feel that way. I love that I love to be needed as the mom. That's a that's a wonderful, joyful thing. And I would be sad if I wasn't. And so for me, um, decompressing is actually spending some time with my kids. Yeah. As long as we don't turn it into a obnoxious thing and I have to kill them anyway. That's not as relaxing. Yeah, really fun things that we parents plan, right? <laughs> yes. Tell me what are some of your favorite moments with your kids and those moments that you just kind of hang on to and, and store away for when it's not as fun. Because I homeschooled my kids, I was able to do something really fun that a lot of people don't ever have the opportunity to do. We did Taekwondo. And so our goal was to get black belt. And so other than the two youngest who were just too small to have gone through the whole program, it took about five, almost six years to go through the whole program. And by the end of it, the four oldest and myself, we all got our black belt. And we had talked and talked about after we get our black belts, we're going to do a homeschool study abroad. And so what we did is we went and it was me and my six kids in our van with a trailer and we loaded it up and we went for 20 weeks around the country and we went and saw all the things that you could just talk about <laughs> but we went and saw them and we went and saw family and we went and saw friends and and we just had a really wonderful time going around and seeing national parks and seeing you know went all the way out to the west coast down the west coast back across you know out into the keys we drove the seven mile bridge we you know, stood on the pier, the furthest point in America, you know, it really isn't the furthest point in America. It's just the place where you take the picture, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and saw so many wonderful, fun things. We got to go swim with manatees and, you know, there's just a whole lot of wonderful things that we got to do and um, places we got to go and things we got to see. And as we would pull up, you'd see these big bus loads of people pull up and all these old, old people with walkers and hobbling would get out. And I'd look at my kids and go, I hope you appreciate that you're doing this now. <laughs> when you're that old. Yeah. <laughs> people have wanted to see this stuff their whole lives and you get to see it now. I hope you appreciate it. Yeah. So hopefully it was significant enough that they will be able to take that and remember that when they get older and have those happy memories. Yeah, they were crammed into a car and we drove thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, but it was a good thing and it was really fun. That sounds like it would be so fun to go road tripping like that with your kids. What a great idea and a great reward. Okay, so I have one more question before we go. And that is for any of the families who are listening and the parents who have just got the diagnosis uh, or they're just starting this journey with special needs, whatever that looks like, what kind of advice or encouragement would you like to give to them? First of all, be kind to yourself because there is no manual for being a parent. And there's definitely not a manual for being a parent of kids with special needs or kids who need extra help or kids who have struggles. And also the other thing that I've noticed is like, for me, I honestly found it a blessing that I had dyslexia because I could kind of get where they were coming from. A parent who doesn't have the same special need, it's really hard to understand where they're coming from. 
it's really hard to see their paradigm or their perspective. So be kind to yourself. Be understanding of them, but be kind to yourself. And don't think that you have to do everything perfect. If you make a mistake, it's okay. You're supposed to make mistakes. There is no manual and there is no grade at the end. The only end is the main goal that you need to have is to make sure that you and your child have a fabulous relationship because that is more important than anything they could learn in school and anything that they could take with them is their relationship with their parent and making sure that that relationship is strong and that there is a love and a bond between you that don't let homework destroy that. Don't let bookwork destroy that. Don't let trying to force them to read destroy that. That book is not important when it's compared to the relationship that you have with your kids. It isn't. Make sure that that relationship with your child is the primary and most important thing so that they know that no matter what happens to them and no matter how they're struggling, they can turn to you and that you will be there for them and that you will be their bestie no matter what. Even if they're an obstinate teenager, they can still turn to you and know that you will be there for them no matter what. That is such great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Mindy, thank you again for taking time out to talk with us and share your family with us a bit. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. I'd like to thank everyone for listening today. You can find all the links and show notes for today's episode at anamazingtheordinarylife.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you left a review and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. As always, I would love to hear your story. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact me at my website or at amazinglyordinary at yahoo.com. And don't miss next week's episode where we'll be talking with Matt and Ashley Meads about raising their daughter on the spectrum. I hope you'll join me then.